This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 16th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, we've talked quite a bit about the usefulness of booster doses for COVID-19 on previous podcasts, and to summarize a lot of data, it appears that boosters increase the ability of vaccine to protect against severe disease and, to a lesser extent, against infection. This is most striking in those who did not receive mRNA vaccines as their initial course, but it appears to be true for everyone. Today, I'd like you to think about why boosters might be beneficial, but not as effective as we might like. Before we do that, though, let's talk about a study of yet another booster dose. This new study was performed in Israel, a country that has high levels of both an initial vaccination and boosting, almost entirely with BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine. So how did this study work? Steve, the study used a group of healthcare workers that had been previously studied at Sheba Medical Center. They've been participating in a large prospective cohort study. All had received the initial course of the Pfizer vaccine and a subsequent booster dose. The authors chose 1,050 eligible participants, and among those, 154 received the Pfizer vaccine, and a week later, a different 120 received mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine. Their goal was to look at adverse events and measure antibody responses. However, because the study was done in the midst of the Omicron wave, the investigators were also able to estimate the efficacy of the vaccine in preventing symptomatic infection. And what did they find? First, the adverse events were the usual local and systemic short-lived issues associated with reactogenicity. To measure efficacy, the authors first showed how much immunity, as measured by antibody levels, waned after previous doses. They measured several parameters that seemed to move in concert. The total levels of IgG that bound to virus fell more than tenfold, 20 to 28 weeks after dose two. And though they started at a higher level after the third dose, they again fell by almost tenfold by weeks 16 to 20. However, after the fourth dose, levels rose to about the same level as immediately after the third dose, and they remained high for the next few weeks, which is the longest time point they looked at in the study. Virus neutralization assays produced comparable results, though the antibodies that were elicited were better at neutralizing the Delta variant than the Omicron variant. Because there were so many infections during this period, the researchers could also provide a very rough estimate of vaccine efficacy over the short period following the fourth vaccine dose. It was low, somewhere in the range of 11 to 30%. Most patients had few symptoms, and it seemed that the fourth dose decreased the rate of symptoms. But it's important to remember that this study was not set up to test the efficacy of the vaccine in preventing infection. The participants were not randomized, there were very small numbers, and they were only followed for three or four weeks, meaning that the vaccine efficacy estimates are going to be very crude. Importantly, this presumably isn't a very high-risk population, so we're not likely to be able to measure much of an effect on severe illness in this group. Still, this does suggest that further boosting is not going to have a very substantial effect on susceptibility to infection. So, Eric, these are the types of data we've seen repetitively over the last year or so. As we deal with understanding how vaccination works and its durability, the value of boosting, and how this works in the face of a new variant that's circulating, I think there are some things that we learn from these data. First, that safety can be assessed although it's assessed in a very small number of individuals, 100 to 150 per group. Thus, common things can be seen, but rare things will not be observed in these small numbers. 
However, the data that we see are consistent with what we would expect. Some local discomfort, no significant adverse events of concern. But again, the numbers are small. Then there's immunogenicity, particularly that measured by neutralizing antibody. Small numbers can be very powerful in understanding the immune response elicited by a third dose. And these are probably generalizable to a much larger population. However, what we don't know is durability, as you commented, and also the immunogenicity in special populations, such as those with weakened immune systems or perhaps at the extremes of age. So more data will be needed, but it is much easier to define the immunogenicity because the human biology is fairly consistent. And then third, the question of protection. And as you pointed out, despite the very small numbers, because of the overwhelming community prevalence and infection force, some insights into infection were able to be observed. But this does not allow us to understand about disease, meaning severe illness, just mild illnesses these individuals experienced, in part because of the small numbers in the generally healthy population. But even small studies done over a short period of time can provide us with a tremendous amount of information, although not all that we want or need to know as we think about the role of boosting and its durability and protection it affords. I'd like to ask you both about why the vaccines we're using might have a more profound effect on disease severity than on infection. One possible explanation that you've raised in the past has to do with the distinction between systemic and mucosal immunity. So how could that affect vaccine effectiveness? Steve, remember, this is speculation, as you said, and we're going to be generalizing, I think, from what Lindsay and I know about other diseases, but we don't know how well anything that we're going to say here will end up applying to COVID-19. But certainly COVID-19 is a mucosal infection. Like other respiratory viruses, the first thing that it infects is respiratory epithelium. And after the virus replicates in the epithelium, it can potentially spread to other tissues, including deeper tissues. The vaccines that we're using induce very high levels of systemic immunity, meaning systemic antibodies and cell-mediated immunity, but not so much on the mucosal surface. It's very difficult to measure mucosal immune responses. There aren't standardized ways of doing that but we can extrapolate from what we know about other vaccines. So vaccines that do induce mucosal immunity are generally live attenuated vaccines that themselves infect the mucosa, that infect epithelial cells. A good example of that is the live polio virus vaccine. The live vaccine can infect epithelium, this is GI epithelium, like wild type polio virus, and it will therefore induce secretory antibodies and other sorts of responses that act at the mucosal surface. The killed poliovirus vaccine, on the other hand, which is injected systemically, induces a systemic immune response without that mucosal immune response. For many years, it was argued that there was an advantage to making a mucosal response because you might prevent infection in the first place. It does appear that both vaccines, however, are able to protect against severe polio, the disease that we really care about, and therefore probably provide, at least at the level of the individual, excellent protection. And there are issues with the live poliovirus that we won't discuss here, which have taken it out of favor. Other than those live vaccines, and Lindsay, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, 
We don't really have good ways of inducing mucosal immunity though. And it may be difficult to produce a live attenuated SARS-CoV-2, which would enable us to do what we do with polio. So Stephen Eric, this is a vexing problem as we've discussed before and Eric, as you sort of point out now, and how do we think about where immunity is elicited? And what you were getting at, Eric, is if we give a shot in my arm, in my muscle, which is not natural, what kind of immune response does that elicit? It obviously goes to the regional lymph nodes, elicits an important immune response that protects against disease, but it's not the way in which we're exposed to pathogens. We're normally exposed to pathogens because we breathe them in or we eat them or we contact them in our skin. And the immune response has been developed over millennia to respond to this and to afford protection. So the compartment issue, I think, is very important, but poorly understood, both in terms of how we're exposed to the pathogen, the inoculum issue, and Steve, as Omicron has shown us, the virus is adapting too. So the inoculum that we're exposed to and the intrinsic virulence of the virus is maturing over the last year as it gains experience in transmission between people. That influences the amount of antigen in the nares and therefore the immune stimulation. And Eric, as you point out, there are other aspects of the immune system besides neutralizing antibody. There's binding antibody, and we're talking about IgG, but there's also IgA and dimeric IgA, and that which is excreted in the mucosal surfaces, which has a very important in our mucosal immune ecosystem that traditional intramuscular vaccines don't prime directly. So these are aspects of host defense that have not been fully explored in the context of COVID that we have much to learn. There's also the issue that I think we haven't thought about, and I'd call it sociologic. Two or three years ago, when you or I had a cold, how often did we get tested? So how well do we understand transient infection with all sorts of other viruses? Low-level, asymptomatic, minimally symptomatic, symptomatic, not requiring action such as hospitalization or seeing a physician. Where we are today with COVID is we are testing even before we get symptomatic. I think this is terrific and provides important insight and can minimize transmission, but it also changes what we are assessing, and therefore how we interpret it in the context of how we have provided healthcare to individuals and the community for the last decade or two compared to the last two years. And so we do have to think carefully about how we are diagnosing COVID in relation to how we usually diagnose respiratory infections in terms of the phase of illness. Getting back to the point that we've discussed about infection versus disease, mild disease versus severe disease, and how the vaccine will ameliorate this pathway, which pretty much for all vaccines, they have always worked better for severe illness than mild illness. And that was part of actually the FDA discussion prior to the emergency use authorization of the first two vaccines in December of 2020, was the concept that if you could ameliorate mild to moderate disease, for all prior infectious diseases that always had a stronger effect on severe illness. So I think it is a pattern that is likely real. It makes biologic sense, but
But the issue before us is we are diagnosing a whole lot more mild and asymptomatic infection for COVID than for any other viral infection we've done before. So many of the studies we've published have used in vitro measures of immunogenicity, particularly the antibody levels that you've been talking about. So are these likely to be good measures of immunity? They are certainly measures of immunity. And whether they're good or not, I think is an open question. On one hand, we do know that antibody levels correlate with protection, not in a very specific way, but in a sort of general way. The more antibody you have, the less likely you are to get infected and the less likely you are to get severe illness. But that correlation is not perfect. And why isn't it perfect? It could be that antibody by itself isn't enough and that you need something else. Now, many of the vaccines that we're using in the world, particularly the mRNA vaccines and the adenoviral-based vaccines, also induce cell-mediated immunity. And while we've published on T-cell responses several times during the outbreak, we don't really rely on those. And that's because cell-mediated immunity is a very complicated animal. There are many arms to the immune system, and there are many, many assays for each one of those arms. The easiest ones are antibody. We have a, essentially a couple of assays for antibody. One is, does the antibody bind to the virus? And the other is, does the antibody neutralize the virus? In other words, does it prevent it from infecting cells? And that's pretty much it. There are different categories of that, but that's pretty much what people have relied on. But there are so many measures of even the response of T cells alone, never mind other cells that mediate immunity, that we don't know which ones to rely on and which ones are important, if any of them are. So you're right, Steve, largely we've measured antibodies and largely that's what we're likely to rely on unless we're able to find some additional correlative immunity among all the assays for cell-mediated mechanisms. So Eric, as you point out, I think there is the mechanism of protection, which is immunologically very complicated. And this actually depends on the pathogen. For example, with HIV, there is no known natural adaptive sterilizing immunity. For malaria, there's chronic infection with control of the infection to prevent severe illness. And then with many, many viral infections, such as SARS-CoV-2, there's infection and elicitation of sterilizing immunity. So the pathogen itself also influences the need for the different types of the immune response and how effective that is. And so I think for COVID, there probably are several immune mechanisms that are able to clear the virus. And it's not a single one, because we do know that there are those individuals who are antibody deficient who get COVID and clear it, and those individuals who have severely weakened cellular immunity get COVID and clear it. So we have the natural experiments that allow us to understand that overcoming SARS-CoV-2 infection, natural infection, can rely predominantly on one aspect of the immune system or another. As we think about vaccines and elicited immunity, the interplay between these different arms of the immune system and the quality of the protection is something that's poorly understood. But a convenient marker, the neutralizing antibody, is something that has emerged because it's easier to measure and largely correlates with the protection we're interested in. 
The other aspect of the assays that we should touch on, Lindsay, is that virtually all of the assays that we use routinely look at responses induced by the spike protein. And that's because the vaccines, at least the purified component vaccines, which are what we use in this country, are all using the spike protein. And yet the virus has a number of other antigens. And it's possible that they contribute to protection against disease as well. Why aren't we measuring those? Well, partly, as I said, it's because of the vaccine and partly because the assays for those other proteins, particularly nucleocapsid, which is the one that most people have looked at, don't appear to be as reliable as the spike proteins. That could be because there's pre-existing cross-immunity because of exposure to other antigens or that there's something technical about the assays. In either case, we're looking at a very small slice of immunity. So given all of this, could there be vaccine approaches that might induce immunity that could better protect against infection? Definitely, maybe. Right now, I don't think that we have a good way of inducing mucosal immunity beyond live attenuated vaccines. It's certainly possible that one could develop strategies that would work. For example, inserting foreign antigens into live viruses that can infect the mucosa might work. For example, could you take the adenoviral vectors that are being used right now that were not maybe quite so attenuated and introduce them onto mucosal surfaces instead of injecting? Part of the responses on the mucosal surfaces appear to require, though, at least some viral replication. So there's some amplification of the production of antigen in a native setting so that the antigen is displayed on the mucosal cells to the immune system. So it would take a lot of engineering to get there using systems that we know right now. So I'd speculate a little bit, Steve, on the tools we currently have available, sort of extending Eric's comments. You know, as we think about our different platforms, mRNA, viral vector, protein, as three common platforms that are available clinically and research-wise. And one question is, can a combination of platform bring out a stronger immune response, such as a protein boost, you know, on top of a prior priming? Something we've used for other vaccine strategies that have strong scientific rationale, but we need data. Eric already mentioned the issue of route, which is very attractive to elicit stronger mucosal immunity, but not an area with a lot of investigation, or at least not a lot of advanced investigation in the clinical space. And then the third issue I would raise is the insert. What is it that we are targeting? Eric, as you pointed out, it could be the whole virus, such as the inactivated viruses, so there are more antigens. But there's also, as the spike protein changes, at what point has the spike protein diverged enough immunologically that one wants to change the insert to better match the circulating strain? And as we witness the Omicron overwhelming prior vaccine and wild-type immunity to the ancestral strain and its immediate descendants, alpha, beta, delta, with Omicron, BA1, BA1.1, BA2, now emerging in the context of broad community immunity to prior circulating strain. The question is, what is the value of altering the insert to better match the circulating strain? And there are areas of investigation looking at that. 
how to generate the neutralizing antibody data to point us in the right direction, and then clinical data, sort of what the piece we're publishing today provides some insights, some footprints on that path to guide us, although the data are small. I think that's another important avenue that can be rapidly adapted, given what we've learned about vaccine development and these platforms. And these are all areas of active investigation that are going on currently. So hopefully as the data emerge, it'll help provide us insight as to what we as a society should be investing in and accelerating. Lindsay, I wanted to touch on one of the many interesting points you just made, and that is on viral diversity and what we know about it. We have published now a couple of items that suggest that we can get more broadly cross-neutralizing activity. That won't necessarily address the issue of protection against infection versus protection against severe disease, but it does at least appear possible to elicit the kinds of immunity that you're describing that will broadly cross-neutralize a number of more distantly related viruses. So I think there is a lot of hope that we can get there, even if those vaccines might not provide protection against mild disease and against transmission. I mean, I think, Eric, our collectively recalibrating as to what our goal of vaccination is will be very important from a society standpoint in how we open up and enhance our commerce and social interactions. Because I think it may be a bridge too far to think that vaccination can prevent transient, mild, asymptomatic infection. Nor is that necessarily the needed goal. And I think we as a community have to reassess that mild infection may be acceptable, but we put in the proper protections so that those who are most vulnerable are protected and we prevent them from getting infected. But I do think we have to both improve our vaccine strategies, but also improve our understanding of our collective goals. I think that's an excellent point. I think we've already recalibrated. There was the hope that we could stop transmission through the use of vaccines and through the use of social measures. And we were able to limit transmission for sure. And we are still able to protect some of our most vulnerable populations through some sort of isolating measures and masking, et cetera. However, the vaccine didn't prevent transmission in a highly effective way. And so now we are stepping back. But if everyone got colds instead of getting severe disease, we wouldn't care about this virus at all. So if we can get to that point, and I think we are making progress there, I think we can have that more open society that we'd love to have. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.